Well, uh, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church again. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're quickly coming up to the end of our series in the book of Job. We only have one more sermon left in the book of Job, and then the last sermon in the series is actually from James chapter 5, where Job is mentioned by name for the only time in the New Testament. And this morning we'll be starting in Job chapter 40, verse 15, and then going all the way to chapter 42, verse 6. And as you turn there in your Bibles, or on your phones, or whatever you're using to follow along, some of the text will be uh, on the screen behind you. Uh, a couple of things to note uh, for our family, our church family, uh, it is a momentous weekend uh, for the Clendenin family. Uh, they have graduated um, from Patrick Henry. It is a great day. They have worked long and hard, many sleepless nights preparing for this day, and they have uh, just recently graduated just this, this weekend, so congratulations to you guys. Um, thank you, Anthony, for working so diligently on our live stream. We had a pink or purplish uh, like tint to our, our video, which is why the lights went down earlier and you saw him messing with that, and so he's fixed that. Thank you for your diligence, uh, everyone on the sound team as well. Um, so now let's turn our attention back to the, the Word of God. Quick reminder of where we've been, so, because context is always really important for us as we come to the Word of God. Um, last week, we finally got God's response to Job. Right? We've been waiting for 40-odd chapters or 38-odd chapters for this to come. We've been around and around with the friends, and it's just been kind of a slog, right? Um, and last week, Dr. Dave told us that, that God had given Job a sort of God-sized picture to sort of address many of the issues that Job was dealing with um, as a response to Job's lamentations over his suffering. And we even saw Job's first response, which is to clap a hand over his mouth and to be silent. Uh, well, apparently God wasn't satisfied with that response, and so we get this morning's passage. Uh, and since it's quite long, we'll be hitting highlights as we go. Uh, but first, we need to pray. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that we get to come uh, before you to hear from your word, uh, to, to worship you, to be together, and to enjoy uh, the wonder that it is um, of being together. And Lord, as we come uh, to you, I am mindful that we don't often uh, have a great vision of you, that we don't often uh, carry with us uh, a good picture of who you are. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would help us with that, that you would show us uh, Jesus, that you would show us who you are um, this morning, and that you would help connect what we know to be true in our head to our heart, that we might feel in our very bones your majesty, your power, but also your love and your care for us. Or draw near to us and let us see Jesus, that we might know the fullness of God in our very bones. Be with us now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as many of you know, I tend to 
engage in a little bit of audience participation at the beginning of my sermons. How many of you, show of hands, have ever seen a YouTube video where they sort of give you a sense of the size of the universe, where they compare you and then they sort of give you different varying levels of sort of celestial objects? Show of hands? Okay. Oh, fantastic. You guys know what I'm talking about. So, this video starts with like this person. He's kind of puny. He's a little tiny stick figure on your screen, and it pulls back to show the enormity by comparison of the Earth. And then it pulls back some more, and then you see the size of the sun, which can fit 1.3 million Earths inside of it. And then it keeps pulling back ever larger, ever larger, Saturn, Jupiter, till we get to stars that are just, frankly, enormous. Arcturus is 1,700 times the size of the sun. Rigel is 474,552 times the size of the sun. And then Betelgeuse, which we all know, between 446,000 and 1 million times the size of the sun, depending on your diameter estimate, okay? At this point, once we get to Betelgeuse, if you take the smaller size, we're talking at least 600 trillion Earths fitting inside of Betelgeuse. And we've completely lost the thread, right? Now it's just big numbers getting thrown out there and to which we just sort of shrug. Oh, that's a really big number, great. We've, all, we've lost all sense of the enormity of these objects simply because they're just too big to wrap our brains around. And that's essentially where we find Job at this point in the book. The Lord has challenged him and given him a God-sized view of God. In a lot of ways, it's just too much. God is too big, too powerful, too majestic, and too mighty to really get a sense of him. And so Job is simply struck silent and dumb by it. But God isn't content to leave him there because he hasn't really connected with who God is yet. He's just like, okay, great, fantastic. And so Joe, the Lord throws Job a bone by giving him a step between God and Job, a sort of midway point to try to cut things down for Job to understand, to try to give him something that he can chew on. Instead of trying to understand God himself, God gives Job a picture of two of his greatest creatures, almost mythical in their power, their might, and their glory, which is, of course, behemoth and leviathan, which are the two creatures that we find in our uh, passage today. So first, behemoth. Many commentators think that behemoth is actually a hippo. So those of you that are too young to uh, to sometimes follow the sermon, those of you that are like ages 7 to like 34, you know, um, you can maybe draw your version of behemoth, right? It's, it's a fun, listen to the description, try to follow along, right? So behemoth is sort of, a lot of commentators think that he's actually a hippo, but which makes kind of sense because hippos are terrifying, go home, YouTube it, um, hippos are scary terrifying creatures that will attack and destroy everything in their path. Now, behemoth would actually be something like a hippo on steroids. Look with me at verses 16, of, and 16 to 18 of chapter 40. Behold, 
His strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. And so this is one sturdy and stout creature. This is a hard, strong, and unbreakable creature. No human can control or hurt this animal. But Behemoth's real power is seen in that the seats of power in the ancient world, the mountains, bow to Behemoth and pay tribute to him. He is constantly consuming food, devouring all that is before him. He is also a river dweller. Remember, rivers back in that day, particularly the Jordan, would have been powerful and frightening forces of chaos. They were pictures of chaos, and Behemoth is utterly unfazed in verse 23. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. And if ever you have tried to swim against the current in a river, you understand how frightening it can be sometimes, especially when you go through rapids. And here, Behemoth is completely unfazed. He's like, okay, great. There's some water, fantastic. Not a big problem for him. And so Behemoth is the first of the works of God, as verse 19 puts it. It is strong, impregnable, and preeminent. He's not to be messed with. And yet, Behemoth is also vulnerable. Look again with me at verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Now, not surprisingly, God can walk right up and slay this beast with ease. Behemoth, for all its power and strength and might and glory, is but a lowly creature compared to God. Nothing new there, right? God is God, and this is a creature. Now, what about Leviathan? We get a whole chapter, chapter 41, on the nightmare that is Leviathan. Interestingly, Leviathan would have been well-known in the ancient world. It would have lived within the sort of cultural consciousness of the time. An epic sea creature of lore that was terrifying and unstoppable. Everyone would have known what God was referring to in the same way that all of you can immediately picture Godzilla. Okay? And Godzilla is, in fact, probably the best way for us to understand this, the best contemporary comparison to Leviathan that I can think of. Listen to this description of Leviathan from verses 14 to 26 of chapter 41. Who can open the doors of his face and around his teeth is terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. No one is so near, one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abide strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, cast firm, uh, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. And so Leviathan 
is an armored beast who has no weak point. He sneezes lightning. Can you imagine that? He sneezes and lightning comes out. That's just crazy, right? He breathes fire. He's immensely strong and doesn't care about anyone or anything. Everyone's afraid of him and nothing can scratch him. He's like Superman crossed with Godzilla. That's just terrifying, right? And he's airtight. Did you catch that? The shields are so close together, they form a seal. He's airtight. It's, it's just mind-boggling how scary this thing is. And that's what God is saying to Job. Can you take on Godzilla, essentially? That's verses 1 through 7 of, of chapter 41. God is challenging Job to take Leviathan on. Can you tame him and lead him around like a pet? Does he plead with you to let him do something as if he were your child? Come on, Job, give it a shot. Why don't you throw down with Leviathan and see how it goes? It's sure to be a fight that you will never forget, much less survive. Look with me at verses 9 to 11. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who, th- who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And this is God's point. Since chapter 3, God, uh, Job has been complaining against God, challenging God as, God as Job justified himself. God is saying, look, man, if you can't even face Leviathan, what makes you think you can take me? And again, that's the point. God is trying to produce within Job a right understanding of who God is. Job needs a sense of how vast, how transcendent, how glorious, how powerful, and how big God really is. Sure, Job understands it intellectually, but he doesn't really get it. And so these pictures of almost mythical beasts are meant to highlight, by comparison, the overwhelming authority and power of God. If you were face-to-face with Godzilla, you would be quaking in your boots, no matter how sure of yourself you are, no matter how smart, no matter how strong, no matter how powerful. If you've got Godzilla standing in front of you, it's not going to go well for you. Godzilla is simply on a whole different level from you. And God is a whole nother set of levels beyond Godzilla. As imposing as behemoth and Leviathan are, God easily controls them. In a sense, God is saying something like this. Job, you thought you were righteous. You were able to take on life in this world. You were rich. You were well thought of. You were articulate. You had a family. Everything was going well for you. You thought that you understood how to go through this life and that you had things under control. But you can't even deal with the monsters of this world. You can't even deal with the forces that this world has to offer. You have no idea what you're talking about. For all your bluster about your goodness, you can't even deal with these creatures or with the forces of chaos, evil, and power that they represent. Who are you to try to put me on trial? And friends, Job's words come from a lack of understanding of who God is. So the friends were, in fact, right about that. They, he does have too small a picture of who God is. And because of that lack of understanding, God wants that to change. He wants Job to understand who he is deep in his bones. Job, again, knows intellectually the greatness of God, but he really needs to move that knowledge from head to heart. He needs to understand 
who God is by learning his his place, God's place, and Job's place. And so it's like this. Many of you have seen pictures of impressive places, like the Grand Canyon, Yosemite Valley, or you know, the Empire State Building. You know what it looks like. You know, may even know the relative size and the beauty of the place. But when you're standing there on the rim of the Grand Canyon or at the top of Half Dome in Yosemite or at the base of the Empire State Building, something changes. It's a little bit bigger than you expected. It's a little bit grander. It's a little bit more beautiful. And you say, wow, I didn't expect it to be that. It's breathtaking. It, experiencing things for yourself changes what you actually know. And so it is with Job. Behemoth and Leviathan were meant to take his breath away. They were meant to be mythical in their size, strength, and uncontrollableness. They were meant to show him, in part, the greatness of God to draw him just that much closer to God. And it works. It really does. Look with me at Job's response in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, question you, and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Verses 5 and 6 are really key here. Do you see the movement of Job's heart from silence to worship? Before, he had just heard, but now he sees. And verses, verse 6's repentance is also really surprising. We might wonder what Job has to repent of. After all, he was blameless for his suffering, and yet... We have seen time and again over the past 40 chapters that there has been a bitterness building in his very soul. As Job has wrestled with suffering, with being blameless for not understanding the purpose of God for this turn in his life, Job's heart has increasingly become set against the Lord. It's no longer a relationship of connection, but one of contention. He often wants God to answer for the perceived injustice rather than to help him with it. But now, after having heard from the whirlwind and having the Lord condescend so that Job might grasp, grasp God just a little bit more, all that bitterness and all of that contention seems to just sort of melt away. And why? Why does it seem to melt away? Because Job has experienced the Lord in a new and deeper way. Job has come to see the preciousness of a relationship with the Lord God Almighty. In short, his faith has been refined, that he is able to worship the Lord God for who he is. These two pictures of creatures are enabling Job to connect with God in a new way. And what's really interesting now is now that we have seen Job's confession here in chapter 42, Satan's challenge back in chapters 1 and 2 have now been been truly answered. Now having seen God, having had the Lord draw near to him in his time of need, when Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
blessed be the name of the Lord. Anytime he says that in the future, it's going to mean something more than what it meant when he said it in chapter 1, in the immediate aftermath of his loss. It means much more now that he has gone through all that he has gone through with the Lord, that he has wrestled with the Lord and come out the other side knowing him just a little bit better. It's the same as the way that holding my wife's hand after 10 years of marriage means much more now than it did at the beginning. Sure, holding her hand doesn't have the same thrill as when we first started dating. You know, holding her hand was like, oh, she's holding my hand. She likes me, right? But now after 10 years of up and down, of many sin, many times of forgiveness, all the grace that she's given to me, holding her, her hand now means far more. Why? Because she's been through far more with me. That it is far more precious because of faithfulness, of forgiveness and of grace demonstrated time and again. And so Job isn't repenting of sin that he's committed to bring suffering on, but of the heart of bitterness that was drawing him away from the Lord to accept whatever the Lord has had for him. You know, as we have gone through this series, there have been sort of phrases that have touched me and sort of hung on with me over the weeks. And I keep coming back to that idea of whatever. We were introduced to that idea in the sort of aftermath of the Nashville shooting when the headmaster said in a post a couple of months before, a few months before, a year before, sometime before, saying that she was learning to accept whatever the Lord had for her. And that as she's going through suffering, that idea of being willing to accept the Lord's whatever has drawn her closer and, and given her a way to sort of persevere through the suffering. And that's what we're talking about here is as Job gets a sense of God from these two creatures, he is beginning to change his heart to a position of whatever. Whatever, Lord, you have for me, I am down for. And yet, though, Job is demonstrably and definitively closer to the Lord. What is conspicuously absent is, in fact, comfort. Through the back and forth with his friends and then Elihu, Job consistently says that he, they bring him no comfort. And still, there doesn't seem to be comfort here for Job. Even amid the whirlwind and the overwhelming power and authority of God, even with understanding who God is a little bit better through the pictures of Leviathan and Behemoth, there doesn't still seem to be, there st still doesn't seem to be any comfort here for Job. This is sort of the last that we see or hear from Job before he's restored, but we still don't see comfort for him in his suffering. There's something missing, and it's comfort. And it, that lack of comfort points us to the one that we need, who is Jesus. As we've looked at Behemoth and Leviathan, we've seen that they were meant to provide a way for Job to wrap his head around God's majesty. That God-sized picture of God helps us to know and to trust, but it's more akin to the knowledge and trust that we have with a king. 
We get the authority, the faithfulness, and the glory of a monarch, which we just saw a coronation yesterday, right? We can know them. We can understand that. We can even put our trust in that monarch. But there's no intimacy there. We haven't made it back to the cool of the Garden of Eden where we walked with the Lord in intimacy. We still don't feel his embrace. And in many ways, Jesus has come to do just that. He has come to end the hostility between God and man. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has taken the full measure of God's wrath against evil and sin. Through his resurrection, he has shown that as the God-man, he is far greater than behemoth and leviathan. For it is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now we don't have to imagine an intermediate step of behemoth and Leviathan to understand God. When we see and know Jesus, we see and know the Father. For in Jesus, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He has come to redeem this world from its bondage to sin and death. He has come to unite us to himself in Christ. The presence of God brings the comfort that we so desperately need. Revelation tells us that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And why? Because the dwelling place of God is with man. Friends, do you see how these chapters highlight both the great majesty of God, the, the sort of transcendence, the unapproachableness of God, and yet also highlight Job's still unmet need for comfort? And do you also see that Jesus comes to bring that comfort in the present and in the future? As Job looks forward to Jesus, he needs comfort. On this side of Jesus, we receive that comfort in Christ. And that brings us to the so what question. Why do we on this side of Jesus need to see Leviathan and Behemoth? Why do we care about two creatures that are meant to point us to Jesus when we already have him? Why do we care? We need these chapters because we often stop at Job's first reaction with silence and almost indifference. We often rehearse the great truths of the gospel, that Jesus has died for us, been raised for us, and been united with us. Like we look at those universe comparison videos. It's too much, it's too grand, it's too amazing, and often it's too familiar. We sort of shrug and say, it's all true, and move on, and doesn't really move us. But these chapters tell us that we need to experience him for ourselves. There is no substitute for coming into the presence of our Savior and knowing him. We see him whenever we suffer, whenever things get to be overwhelming, whenever we get tired of the grind and the brokenness of this world, whenever he preserves us and gives us perseverance, which implies it's hard since perseverance isn't easy. Right? We see him in that. In all of that, we experience his goodness, his sufficiency, and his grace, and we experience very just him. Now, we're Presbyterians here. We're famous for being the frozen chosen, for not being super enamored with feelings and with experiential religion. 
that we would much rather talk about what we know than about what we feel. And in some ways, that's good, right, and true. And in other ways, it really, truly does hinder us. Because we are meant to be people that connect. We were meant to be people that experience God and to be moved by him. We were never meant to just sort of be people of doctrine. And this cha- these chapters tell us that. That it's not enough for Job to know, but he needs to feel God. And so, what does that mean for us who tend to scorn experiential religion? When we do the ordinary, normal things of life and engage in the ordinary means of grace, do we experience Jesus? When we read our Bibles, are we seeking to check the box of doing our devotions? Or are we seeking God? Are we seeking to meet him every morning when we try to sit down with our Bibles? Or if you're like me, are just trying to develop a discipline of reading in general? Are you seeking to just read or are you seeking to meet him? When we come to church and sit in these chairs for about an hour and a half, about an hour and a half, do we come because our parents made us, if you're a student or a child? Or do we come because we feel like we ought to or we have to? This is what we're supposed to do. Or do we come to experience Jesus? Do we come to hear his words to us? Do we come so that we might be confronted with our great need for him and see his answer? Have we met Jesus this morning? Are you going through the motions or are you meeting him? Friends, it is easy to come because that's what we do. But we are called to meet Jesus, to know him, and to worship him every time that we come on Sunday, every time that we open his word, every time that we hear him on the radio, through whatever songs you're listening to. And also, are you experiencing Jesus by being with one another, by being and doing the work that he has called you to do? Your workplace is not outside the purview of understanding and seeing Jesus. When you run as in chariots of fire, right, do you feel the Lord's pleasure? Do you feel and experience him as you teach, as you work, as you do whatever it is that you do? The Bible calls us to experience him, to do everything out of worship to him. Why? Because we know him and we see him in all that we do and say. And so let us experience him this morning. Why? Because he's here, right here with you. You look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you will see Jesus. Maybe as with a veil over it a little bit, since we're a little bit sinful, but yet you will see him and you will experience him ought to rejoice. So let's come before him, taste and see that he is good and see 
the wondrous glory of our gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us not Leviathan or Behemoth, but that you have given us your son, that you speak to us by your son. Lord, none of us have seen you in the flesh, but Lord, we have seen you in those that have testified to your goodness and your grace. Lord, enable us to see you. Enable us to experience you in every aspect of who we are. Lord, would we not be going through the motions of our faith? Would we not be just trying to tick check marks of what we ought to do as good Christians, but would we experience you and meet you here in this place, here in our lives, every moment of every day of every year? Let's see you, we pray. In his name that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.